Our passage today comes from Genesis chapter 31, verses 36 through 42. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you've hotly pursued me? For you've felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before me and my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I've been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. This is God's word. Father, uh, we, we just thank you for your word, Lord. Uh, we know that it's powerful. Even when we encounter these bizarre family episodes, Lord, we know that, that you're working truth into us as you show us the truth about really uh, all of humanity and what's in the heart of mankind and what's in the world, Lord. Um, but one thing that we see that remains true and steady is that you never fail to deliver your people from sin, Lord. You've never failed us one day. And so, Father, today as we, as we grab this passage and we, we look into it, God, we ask um, that we would see your faithfulness in our lives and throughout all of history uh, together as a church. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, good morning. How we doing? Good, good, good. So, uh, so if you're new here, and I know several of you are because I met you this morning, welcome. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, and we have been on a journey uh, for the last seven or eight months going through the book of Genesis together. And this encounter, I mean, I feel like I say this every, every week, but this is just bizarre, right? I mean, these, these encounters that we see um, in the book of Genesis and so today what we're going to be doing is I've kind of I've pulled some themes out of Genesis chapter 30 and 31 because it's this really nuanced encounter um, uh, between the patriarch Jacob, who's Isaac's son and Abraham's grandson, and his uncle slash father-in-law Laban. This, this really kind of, kind of uh, unique scene. I think that there are some themes that play out of it that, that we really need to hear today as a church. So what, the way that we're going to do this today is usually I preach kind of verse by verse through, the, through a, a section of Scripture. I'm going to look at the themes, and if you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to just open that up and kind of track with me in Genesis chapter 30 and 31, and I'll kind of let you know where I'm at as I'm storytelling kind of what's happening in those passages. But as you flip there, let me tell you about this theme that I keep seeing in this passage that's good for us today. Uh, because one of the things we notice in the Bible is that there are, there are patterns, meaning there are recurring themes. Uh, maybe there's schemes of the enemy that keep surfacing in different people's lives. Or maybe it's the faithfulness of God that keeps showing up when people don't deserve it. Today, the, the, the theme 
and pattern that we see in the scripture is this, that there is a cycle of oppression, enslavement, and deliverance in the scriptures. In the Bible, over and over again, we see this, we see this theme. Sin enters the world. God's people are enslaved by sin and oppressed and held captive by the devil. Sometimes that's, you know, through uh, different worldly leaders. Uh, Then God's people attempt to work their way out of that enslavement on their own efforts, and they fail, only to find that their only hope is through God delivering them. That's the theme that we see in the Scripture, kind of the big picture. And this pattern's all over the Bible. It's it's probably uh, on display most prominently in the story of the Exodus. So if, you, if, you're in, if you're in the book of Exodus, the whole story is about this. It's a story about how God's, God's people had to flee to Egypt because of a famine and some other reasons. And, uh, and that happened because of their sin. And they lived 400 years in slavery in Egypt, in bondage as slaves. And God looked down upon them and heard their cry for help and miraculously delivered them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. It's the story of humanity. It's the story of the church. God is always doing this for his people. And that's what we see in this relationship today. I was, I was having breakfast recently with someone I'm close to, and I said, how are you? And he said, man, I just can't sleep. And I was like, hey, what's going on? Why can't you sleep? And he said, I keep replaying these things in my mind from 30 or 40 years ago, and they're just haunting me. I just can't let go of what I've done in my life, he told me. What's this man describing to me over this bacon and eggs? Enslavement to sin, right? Bondage, captivity. The devil, church, loves to take your sin and rule and control your life with it. In fact, that's the only way he can rule and control your life is through your relationship to sin. The only leverage that the enemy has in our hearts is when we're still hanging on to sin. That's why when Jesus came, he came to sever our relationship with sin. That's the whole reason he came. It's only when we're still trying to find our life while hanging on to sin that we're enslaved. So how does God respond? I asked this this man at breakfast, I said, do you want to be forgiven? Do you want to let go? Do you want to sever your relationship with sin. And he said, yes, and we, we prayed about it. And he's on a different journey now. It's, it takes some time to learn how to, to live in a, in a lifestyle where you're delivered from sin, doesn't it? It, t- it takes a lifetime, actually. That's why the Bible says that we're being sanctified as God's people. My question to you is this. How do you find relief from your oppression to sin, your enslavement to sin? Where, where, do you, where do you run? Where do you hide? Who comes to your rescue? It's always the same old story for Christians. We wander off from an abiding relationship to Jesus. We get caught in a pattern of sin. We try to get ourselves out of it, only to find ourselves digging deeper into it. And the only way we ever get out is because God delivers us. I'm reminded of the psalmist, Psalm 121, starts out by saying this, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is a psalm of ascent that God's people would sing 
on their way to the festival when they were headed into Jerusalem that represented their deliverance. They would lift their eyes up to the hills. All they had to do is lift their eyes up. Church, that's all we have to do to be delivered from sin. Do you know that? To lift our eyes up to the cross and the resurrection where Jesus has delivered us. So here's our big idea today. We're gonna dig into the story in Genesis. Deliverance from our enslavement to sin is only found through surrendering to Jesus. Here's our outline. I'll tell you where I'm going before I get there. Going to kind of play this out through the different characters, all right? I think Laban in this story is definitely the oppressor, all right? He, he's, a, he's, a, he's a tool of the enemy in Jacob's life. And, and what we realize about uh, spiritual oppression is this, that the devil oppresses us through our enslavement to sin. Through our relationship to sin is where the enemy works in our lives. That's the only place he has dominion to work in our lives, Okay. Then we see Jacob. Jacob's the other main character in this story. Jacob is really the slave in this story. He's uh, he's in physical slavery and spiritual slavery. And what we see is that it is the nature of mankind to attempt to work off our sin debt. That is our knee-jerk reaction every single time when we realize that we're enslaved to sin. How can I pay it off and get out of here? And then we have Jesus, the main character of the story. He doesn't He doesn't specifically show up here, but he sure does uh, throughout the themes of the whole Bible. Jesus is the deliverer. Jesus delivers us from sin as we surrender. So let's dig into that first point about Laban here. And uh, and now we're going to get into Genesis 30 together. So the, the text that I read to you a few minutes ago, I'll read it to you again. What's happening in this story is Jacob finally hits his breaking point with his uncle. He's like, I have had enough of this. It took him 20 years to get there. I kind of I understand when I look at my own life, though, right? Sometimes it takes me longer than it should to realize things. So he finally hits his breaking point with Laban, and he, he declares really what's been happening. I want you to notice our three themes in this passage here. Let me read it for us. Jacob became angry and berated Laban. And Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What have I done to deserve this, this enslavement? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Because Laban comes after him after he leaves. He says, for you felt through all my goods. You found, have you found, uh, what have you found of all your household goods? He thinks he stole some things from him. See to it here that my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between the two of us. Let's work it out, he says. And then he, and then he declares really the truth. These 20 years I've been with you. And he goes on to, to talk about the, the story of the livestock. And he says, you know, your ewes, and your, your female goats, they've not miscarried. And, and what's been eaten by rams from the flocks, I've paid for it out of my own pocket. That hasn't hit you. And, uh, and he says, these 20 years I've been in your house, I've served you 14 years for your two daughters because Laban had tricked Jacob into marrying the wrong daughter. And Jacob was blinded by his sin, and so he follows through with it. And he says, six years for your flock, and you've changed my wages 10 times. You keep going back on your word, Laban. And then comes Jesus to the rescue, right? If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely you would have sent me away empty-handed. You would have just robbed me blind and enslaved me. But listen to this. God saw my affliction and the labors of my hands and rebuked you last night. See, God came to Laban in a dream the night before. So here's the story. Do you see it? Laban oppresses, Jacob complies for a season, and God delivers. 
That's the story of humanity. Just insert our name in instead of Jacob's, right? But God is always doing this. We, we see in Genesis 29, 31, that Leah is hated. And, uh, and God sees her and he opens her womb to make her more desirable, to work through her. Rachel, um, Rachel, um, you know, God listens to Rachel. And after like 11 sons are born by Leah, he opens her, her womb in Genesis 30, 22. And, and God saw in this passage the affliction of Jacob. Each and every one of these people have tried their own ways of deliverance. Leah had babies. Jacob worked. Rachel trusted in her beauty. All while Laban sat back and schemed the whole plan. But God delivered. Laban is the only character in this whole passage that really doesn't have any spiritual resolution. He kind of exits stage left after Genesis 31. And as far as I can tell in, in the scriptures, this man remains as a deceptive, manipulative pagan for the rest of his life. So let's look at the ways he is used as a tool to oppress Jacob in this story. Uh, in Genesis 30, 25, we see that Jacob wants to leave his family and go back to dwell in the promised land with Isaac, his, his father, and he had these 12 sons and his, and his wives. And he, he wants to take everyone back to the promised land. He wants to follow God. So Laban realizes this, uh, that Jacob is hearing from God, and now he's trying to obey God. And so he comes up with this little, little plan. You can read this in verse 27. He's like, hey, I've learned by divination, right? He's like pulling the God card. He's trying to weasel his way in. I've learned by divination that it was because of God, you know, that he's on your side that I've received all of these blessings. You see, he doesn't invoke the name of Yahweh, the one true covenant-keeping God, but instead he uses this religious language. He's basically saying what any Muslim, Hindu, or Buddhist could say about God. He doesn't invoke the personal name of the covenant-keeping God because he doesn't know him. It reminds me of that story about the seven sons of Sceva in the book of Acts. Do you guys remember that story? Where those guys are like, hey, let me try some of this magic. And they, they, they end up walking away naked and bloody, right? <laughs> That's what the scriptures say. That's what happens when you try to act like you know God when you don't know God, right? So Laban's pulling this kind of card here. And so they come up with this, with this scheme. Uh, Laban says, look, uh, let me take care of my family before you leave. Uh, let me send you away. Uh, with some money in your bank account. And in this day, money had hair, right? It was all about the livestock. Let me send you away with, with some of these, uh, you know, these savings accounts here, these ewes and these lambs. And Jacob says, okay, that'd be nice, but I need to have clarity because I can't trust you, right? He says, so here's the deal. I'll take the ones that have spots and they're modeled and you take the ones that are either pure black or pure white. I'll take all the rest of them. You know, I'll take kind of the worst of, of, of the uh, livestock. That way, when we look at, out at the field, we look at our bank account, we pull up the app on our phone, we know exactly whose money we're looking at, right? That's what he's saying here. And, um, and so, uh, but here's what happens. So they shake on the deal. It's a good deal. But then overnight, Laban, this twisted, manipulative uncle, takes all of the livestock that would have gone to Jacob, and he sends it with his sons three days away. And this would be like bankrupting Jacob, right? This would be like sending him away with nothing. And so the next morning, Jacob wakes up, and he has to go back to work with Laban because there's no livestock for him to take. We see that Laban is doing everything in his control 
to keep his thumb on top of Jacob and oppress him and keep his kids close. He is a control freak. So this, this narrative with Laban will continue as we keep walking through these two chapters. But I just want to take a moment and reflect on our own lives for a second. When we think of the word oppression, we think of slavery. The slavery that we think of is different uh, than the, than the um, in our country's history than what the Bible's talking about here. And so Jacob, what we see in this passage right here is this slavery is that Jacob is willingly staying under the thumb of his uncle. He could have left. He just couldn't leave with his family. But now he's trying to get out of this oppressive relationship. He's trying to hit the eject button and get out of there and walk back into the promised land where his family's at. And he can't. But this is how sin seeks to enslave each and every one of us, church. Do you see how the enemy seeks to oppress your soul? Here's what enslavement says. Here's what the devil says to us through enslavement. Just serve me a, a couple more years, and then you can leave with everything you'd ever imagined. You can have it all. To some degree, we've all lived under the oppression of sin or are living under it to some degree. And we pass the buck, just like Laban does, on down into the generations that follow us. Because misery loves company. Enslave people, enslave people. When we're oppressed by sin and under the thumb of the devil, we are miserable people. And the gospel is the good news that says you no longer have to bow your life to the devil through submitting to the yoke of the slavery of sin. The only thing that can keep you enslaved in your sin is your own choosing. Your own choosing of living hidden in your sin instead of being hidden in the work of Jesus. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Colossians 3, 3 that says, you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So instead of hiding in the fig leaves of the garden and of our sin and the oppression and enslavement of sin, we now can be hidden in the work of Christ. But we still pick up the fig leaves, don't we, church? Paul would say this in Galatians chapter 5.1. It's the same question that I asked that man I met with. Paul says this, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So my question to you this morning is, do you really want to be free from the enslavement that sin seeks to have on your life? Do you really want to be free? Do you want to keep hiding in the fig leaves and the darkness of sin? Or do you want to walk in the light as he is in the light? Be covered with the precious blood of Christ. Sever that relationship with sin. Because it's yours for the taking. To surrender to Jesus through laying it all down. To come and clean with the Lord about where you're at. Because the devil, you know, Uncle Laban himself here, desires to enslave and to keep you miserable, but Jesus wants to set you free, church. Amen? Let's look at Jacob now. We're going to keep walking through this. Jacob, in this kind of metaphor, this giant metaphor, is really the slave in this relationship. He represents really our attempt to work off our sin debt. Jacob represents all of us at some point in our lives, and maybe currently for some of us. What does Jacob do? Jacob goes back to what he's always done. He goes back to his own fleshly nature, and he says, you know, let's get out of this slavery by working off the debt. 
Let me put it on my back. Let me put the cross on my back and handle it all myself. That's when you know that the enemy has you deceived. When you think that you can find freedom from the enslavement of sin through your own efforts. That's when you know he's really got you. When you think, man, you know, if I could just implement another way to keep myself from sinning. If I could just put another barrier in place. Because what we're saying is that there's a way that we could change our own heart when Christ wants to give us a new heart. When you live this way, your life looks like Jacob's. The months turn into years. They turn into decades. And before you know it, you're at the end of your life on this earth, enslaved and never really acknowledging it. As we read earlier, Jacob finally gets to the end of himself here. He berates Laban, and he's ready to surrender and see God's deliverance. He declares that, but it won't be before a, a few more wasted years and attempts of his own efforts. Genesis 30, 27, you know, for Jacob, no flock, no problem. He justifies his enslavement again, right? He tries to work himself out of it again, and so what does he do this time? He says, you know what? I'm going to build wealth from the ground up. We're going to figure this thing out. And so he composes this superstitious little plan to get a bigger, more healthy flock than Laban. And here's how it works. Is he get, he, you know, he's, he's out by these, uh, these troughs where uh, the, the, the sheep and the goats would go uh, to drink water. And, uh, and, and he knows he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, um, he's excellent at his craft of being a shepherd. He goes and he says, I know this is where, you know, um, where they'll mate. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to have mine mate with the bigger, stronger ones. That way we can get bigger, you know, bigger, stronger flocks, uh, more money. And so what he does is he takes these sticks and he starts, you know, like a Boy Scout, like whittling them down, right? And, uh, and, and he, he takes them down to the white of the stick and he sets the sticks, you can read it yourself, in front of these troughs. And somehow this is supposed to attract them to drink there and therefore, you know, mate there. Evidently, drinking water is the same as mating for, for this story. Um, and, so, and so he sets this little superstitious plan out there. This is just a little side note if you're a Hebrew geek, uh, like I try to be sometimes. I'm not nearly as much as Brandon, but I, I try to act like it sometimes. Um, but the, the word for um, white, the whittling of the stick, is actually the same word for Laban. How crazy is that? So you could kind of, maybe you'll figure it out, I don't know. You could kind of stitch it together where maybe Jacob is trying to expose Laban's sin by this little superstitious plan that he's got. Um, I, I'm not sure. But the, the same thing happens, okay? Jacob is working his tail off, trying to get himself out of this toxic slave-like relationship that's, that's really based on sin, and God is the one delivering him. Jacob couldn't make those animals breed by sitting out a few sticks. Are you kidding me? It was God. Some of us think that we are the ones doing the delivering through our own efforts, and it's always God delivering us. The point, uh, at this point, Jay, Laban is furious. He's used every tactic possible to enslave Jacob and his family and take control of their lives, but it's not working, right? And let me just say this. When we surrender to Jesus, this has to be how the enemy feels, this has to be what it feels like for the enemy to be declawed and defanged when he seeks to oppress believers in every single way possible and we just refuse to play his game. 
Because he wants to interact with you through a relationship with sin. But Jesus says, I've come to do away with sin, to give you a new heart and a new way to relate to God the Father. That's what the scriptures would call regeneration. Believers are given a new heart that's filled with the Spirit of God and activated by the Word of God. When we do not give the enemy company in his misery, what we are doing is defanging, declawing, and silencing the enemy's power in our life. And all we got to do, church, is lift our eyes up to the hills. That's all we got to do is just resist to play the game. So we, we keep going in chapter 31 here. I would love to tell you that Jacob finally gets it and his life is perfect from here. It'll take a lot more, just like it does for me and you at times. Even in seeing God's grace on his life, chapter 31, verse 6, he's talking with his family and says, hey, we got to get out of here. Um, God's calling us back to the promised land, calling you, Leah, Rachel, and kids, 12 sons, and all of this livestock to go to the promised land, the land he'll show us. And I've got to lead us there because I follow that God too. Um, but Jacob still tries to deliver himself. And I really wish this didn't feel familiar, but it does. Instead of leaving like a man, <laughs> uh, you know, standing face to face with Laban and saying, hey, I follow the one true God and he called us to leave and we're leaving. What he does is he waits for Uncle Laban to go on a, 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 a trip to get his sheep sheared and he sneaks out in the middle of the night with his family. What a man, right? And, uh, and let me just say this. This is not how God delivers us. He doesn't deliver us in the darkness. He delivers us in broad daylight. Anytime you see darkness in the Bible, bad. Light, good, right? God delivers us in the light. When I used to uh, preach at uh, youth camps and things like that, um, there would usually be kind of a tactic at the end where you would do an altar call and every eye bow, every knee, or every knee bowed, every eye closed, you know, slip up your hand a little bit if you want to follow Jesus. And at one point I just realized, what are we doing here? What are we, is this how God delivers people in the darkness with a little hand up? And so finally I just told him, I said, guys, turn the lights all the way on, keep your eyes open. Do you want to be delivered from sin? Do you want to be delivered and rescued by Jesus? Stand up, I'd love to pray with you. We're not doing ourselves any favors by thinking that God delivers us in the darkness. He doesn't do that. He delivers us in broad daylight. And sometimes there are consequences for being followers of Jesus. And we are feeling those more now than ever, probably in our country. And that's God's grace, church. It costs something to be a disciple of Jesus. Okay, I'm off my notes here. Um, Laban, Laban hunts them down and he finds them, okay? So they leave. He hunts them down, he finds them. Uh, and he goes, oh, Side note, Rachel, she pulls uh, a little kind of funny here. She goes through before they leave, and she, she grabs uh, her, her father's household gods. So, I mean, you know, like, I don't know if they're like action figures or what, but he, he grabs these little wood kind of action figures that are gods to him, little images, of, and, and she takes them with them when they leave. Well, I, I think... I, I, you don't get the impression that Laban is going to chase them down until he finds out that his action figures are gone, right? His, his household gods. And so he hunts them down, I kid you not, and he's going through every single tent looking for these household gods. He doesn't care about his family. He's concerned about the gods. And this is how you know the Bible's true. The scriptures say that, and you can read this in chapter 31, verse 35, 
that he comes to Rachel's tent, and, uh, and she, he's going through everything looking for the, the action figures. And, and she says, hey, Dad, I can't get up because the way of women is upon me. She's sitting on top of him. So she's saying, hey, it's kind of that time of the month for me, Dad. I can't get up. And so he, he breaks. He leaves the tent. And then, you know, it's just really interesting. So then Jacob finally breaks, and that's where he gets into that passage that we looked at at the beginning. He finally realizes that that way of thinking, that he could deliver himself out of sin on his own, will never, ever, ever work. He hits a breaking point with the enemy. He hits a breaking point with trying to work his way out of his own enslavement to sin. Have you hit your breaking point with trying to work your way out of your own sin? Have you hit rock bottom? Is the Lord showing you what the way of freedom is and you're resisting it? Does slavery in sin feel safer than surrender in him? I get how sin works. I get how the enemy works. I think a lot of times it does. It feels safer to hide in our sin than to walk in the broad daylight of God's grace. And you're enslaved when you do that. You're held captive in bondage when you live that way. I know it doesn't make sense, but when we live isolated in our sin, we actually believe that. We actually believe that it's safer to be enslaved to sin. What will it take for you to realize the true condition of your heart? The Apostle Paul in Romans 6 says this, talks a lot about slavery to sin and freedom in Christ, and we're going to be looking at this as we land the plane here. Um, or actually, we're not landing the plane. Don't get your hopes up. Um, <laughs> Romans 6, 6, uh, he says this, we know that our old self was crucified with him. You know, that our flesh was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. In other words, to sever our relationship with sin so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Not set free from temptation, but set free from the power that sin has to enslave us. Now, if we've died with Christ, that means you've become a follower of Jesus, you've declared faith in him, we believe that we will also live with him. We believe in the resurrection. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, he'll never die again. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He'll come back fully alive to redeem his church. And therefore, death has, no longer has dominion over him. For the death, he died, he died to sin once for all. In other words, he died all of our deaths to sin. He opened the prison door so that we could walk out with his death, is what he's saying. But the life he lives, this is key, he lives to God. So you must also consider, and that's a, that's a, that's a word that has to do with how we think, right? You must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. In other words, we have to pause when we think about our behaviors and activities when we're Christians, that there is, a, there is a pause and there's a considering in there. Am I trying to feed the flesh or am I walking by the Spirit? Because I believe that every decision we make and every behavior that flows from our hearts and our lives is either flowing from the flesh or it's flowing from the Spirit. There's, there's, not, there's not really, it's not real convoluted in the Scriptures. It's pretty pretty clear. Um, you know, the flesh is a life driven by sin and under the control of the enemy himself. 
He's the one pulling the strings behind the, the curtain, right? He's the master puppeteer behind Jacob and Laban all of their lives and behind ours. He's our Uncle Laban. But the Spirit, this is what Paul's talking about, is this. is When we surrender to Christ, we have to consider, we have to think, we have to think about what's flowing from our lives, that we are dead to sin, that this no longer lives. I know it wants to rebirth itself, but we're dead to it. It's no longer a viable source of life for us. Amen? That's the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. Christian, even though you may feel so ashamed about the amount of time that you've spent secretly enslaved to the devil through sin, God knows it all. God knew about all 20 years of Jacob's life. God knew about all of the, I don't know, 60 or 70 years before, I think. He knew all of it. He knows every moment that you seek to find life through your sin. And he doesn't flinch. He doesn't hold back his love and says, well, if you can climb up the ladder a little bit, maybe I'll come to you. But he reaches all the way down to find us. That's the gospel. Not that we climb the ladder to him, but that he condescends to us. So my question to you is this. Is there anything that's secretly enslaving you that you need to confess today? put you on the hot seat because I don't want you to live another day in bondage because you don't have to. Lastly, we see that Jesus is the deliverer. Jesus delivers us from sin as we surrender. So in Jacob's response to Laban, he confesses the, the futile and foolish lifestyle of trying to appease Laban through effort. And he says this, the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, all from the person of Jesus Christ, had, if he had not been by my side, surely you would have sent me away empty-handed, right? Surely I would not have walked in the victory of knowing the one true God. But God saw my affliction, and he saw the labor of my hands, and he came and rebuked you in your sleep last night, Laban. Basically, he says, Laban, you've never cared about me. You've only cared about yourself, but God has always cared about me, even when I haven't cared about him. Jesus has always been with me. Yahweh has always been with me, and he has the power, and he has the dominion over your slave-driving tendencies, Laban. You can imagine when a God who is clearly blessing Jacob's life shows up through all these ways, through the livestock and the childbearing in all of these miraculous ways, when he shows up, and you're a God that worships action figures, you know, when he shows up in a dream to you, it freaks you out. So immediately Laban gets on his heels and he backs off of what he's been doing to Jacob. And, uh, and they end up making a, a covenant. They have this big heap. And now, you know, Jacob is making covenant because of the one true God Laban is making covenant so Jacob doesn't kill him and God doesn't smite him, right? That's what Laban's tendencies are here, still self-protection. So from here, they do what any uh, ridiculously uh, dysfunctional family would do. They have a party. <laughs> they all sit together. Laban feasts with himself in mind. Jacob feasts with the one true God and his family in mind and the promise. Laban gets to kiss his kids goodbye and Jacob gets to set his face toward the promised land. And how is this possible? Because it is God 
who delivers. It is Jesus Christ himself doing the delivering, doing the uh, uh, providing and the protecting. It was, it was messed up for Jacob and Leah and Rachel. Uh, it was, you know, for the messed up people like Jacob and Rhea, Leah and Rachel, and it's for messed up people like me and like you. God wants to deliver you. Let's, let's finish this passage in Romans 6 here. So if we're not called to live under the oppression of the devil, and we just need to acknowledge that and confess that, um, we need to consider that we're no longer slaves to sin because we're called to lay it down and Jesus deliver us. What does that practically mean? Does it mean that we just, we kind of are forgiven and we say, okay, well, I'm just going to go my own way. Now, let's see what Paul says, these last uh, four verses here. Romans 6, 20 through 23. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you couldn't be righteous. Nothing you could, nothing you could do. But what fruit, what was coming from your life at the time from the things which you are now ashamed? In other words, look what came from you when you were living as a slave to sin. For the end of those things is death. That's where it takes you. What Laban is doing, you live by Laban's ways, it leads to death. It promises you just another week, just another day, just another month, and it shaves years and decades and a lifetime that leads to eternal death when you live by his ways. But he says, but now, verse 22, that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, consider that, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Freedom, church, does not mean doing whatever you want whenever you want because there's grace. That's just making a slave out of your, you're your, a slave to your desires, right? You're your own God. What the Bible says is that true freedom comes from believing and living as servants of Jesus. We've become slaves of God. We've become slaves of righteousness, this cycle of freedom isn't just repentance and faith. The churches live that way for far too long. If I just confess my sins and Jesus saves me, then I'll live like hell. That is not the gospel. Jesus came to create new people with a new obedience and a new holiness. It doesn't matter where you've come from. But if the gospel is not transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, we don't have the gospel. It's not the real thing. It's just another form of slavery. He says, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's end eternal life. The Holy Spirit is making us new, not just cleaning our slate. He's not just giving you a fresh start to try to do it again on your own. Because of Grace Church, our sanctification journey is visible as we look back, right? Our lives are being transformed more and more to the righteous standard that Jesus embodied. It's not legalism. It's not moralism. We're not climbing a ladder. But there is a certain way that the life of a Christian, there's a trajectory that it's on. And now, in this season of the church, what an amazing time to let our light shine before man. Amen? Is there anything keeping you from that today? Anything keeping you from walking in the light? That's what's enslaving you. 
Is there anything keeping you from declaring the mysteries of God to a lost world? That's what's enslaving you. Jesus came to open the prison door and let you walk out. Will you do it? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you um, that by your grace, we can abandon the lifestyle of slaves. We can stop the self-justification of our sin. We can receive the deliverance that we have in Jesus. A deliverance that has come, is coming, and will come. It's a sanctification journey, Paul says. It's a journey that is when we look back, we say, man, I'm not where I want to be, but praise God, I'm not where I was. That's the trajectory of a person filled with the Holy Spirit. And we know that we haven't climbed some moralistic ladder or some legalistic ladder, but that you've condescended to become like us, to save us, and deliver us, Lord. And so, Father, we want to walk with eyes wide open, lights all the way on with Jesus. And we need the power of the Spirit to do that, God. Lord, I pray for those in here that are held captive today, Lord. Oh, Lord, I feel like I'm reading their mail right now. And really, it's you, Lord, because you always know. You always know about those dead-end roads of our enslavement. God, I pray that they'd have the courage to get up and walk out today. Father, would you deliver us from our bondage to sin and set us free in Christ today? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.